I want to talk about epidemiology and immunology because, of course, they're probably the two hottest topics of 2020. Immunology, most people understand as, as the science of immune systems and how vaccines are created and, and how the body resists disease. But what is epidemiology and how is it related to immunology? So I guess I'll take a stab at this, uh, <laughs> Andrea. So as I said, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, but I am a public health scientist and I've had training in epidemiology. Um, that's a component of, of what I do. Uh, but basically epidemiology is the scientific and systematic study of the distribution, um, as well as uh, the determinants of health-related states and events. Typically we're talking about disease, we're not always talking about disease, um, and always in specified populations. So how is it related? I mean, we could relate it to the pandemic right now. Um, you know, Andrea's obviously an immunologist looking at things from a micro level, studying the, I'm not gonna tell you, Andrea, what you study, but you know, the help me define what you do, you know, really understanding the transmission of viruses, the how how the components of the viruses, how we're spreading them, how virulent they are. I just botched that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, I then am looking at okay, so that's the that's the the disease, the virus at a micro level. How is that now impacting the population? You know, how is the disease? Um, what's the disease spread? What's the disease burden? How many people are getting the disease? Or is there um, you know is there differential spread across different subpopulations? Are certain people more likely to get infected or more likely to die as a result? Um, of the virus. So it's really the distribution of these uh, determinants of, of health and health outcomes. Andrea, would you? Yeah, agree? so yeah, I mean, generally, yeah, absolutely. So obviously, so immunology is a really broad catch-all. Um, you know, it's the study of the immune system and immune function. And ultimately, the immune system is involved in everything, every biological process that we have from obesity to wound healing, to fending off infectious disease, to cancer, to autoimmunity. I mean, literally every process in your body is, uh, you know, involves the immune system in some capacity. And so obviously even within immunology, there are, you know, niche specializations, but ultimately, you know, when epidemiology is looking at distribution and uh, prevalence of disease or, or different health conditions or things like that, there's going to be interplay with the biology of that. And ultimately, that's where the immunology comes in. And so in order to understand, you know, spread of a disease or, um, you know, risk factors or, or um, environmental concerns, you have to also understand the underlying disease process um, to really fully address it. Thank you so much. So epidemiology then really deals with the the nuts and bolts of of what's actually happening in a population. It deals with the, the coalface of a pa pandemic, for example, explains where outbreaks are occurring, whether or not a second or third wave is is likely. And it, it greatly informs our ability to introduce measures to combat pandemics and to limit the spread throughout a population 
uh, identify at-risk categories, etc. But as I understand it, epidemiology also has great predictive power. It, g- it gives us the, the ability to make forecasts about in future impact of, of a disease on a population, depending on what measures are or, or are not taken. And it's these forecasts that uh, enable scientists and, and doctors to make preparations for a pandemic and to de- you know, provide suitable advice to policymakers um, and and so forth to make sure that the resources are available for what might be be needed or what's what's coming around the corner. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, you know, for example, there's the test positivity rate. That's something that everyone's talking about now with COVID, and and we know, you know, in epidemiology, you set a threshold. Really, you want to be at five percent. Ideally, you want to be at three percent to demonstrate that the virus is being suppressed in a, in a community. Um, so we we track the data. We we um, you know we're analyzing the data and we're calculating something called test positivity. So out of everyone who's tested, how many people are testing positive for the virus among everyone who's been tested? And so there are certain thresholds. Um, again, I'm using five percent. I know New York City used three percent as a threshold for shutting down schools, for example. Um, we're also always constantly monitoring and tracking other things like how many bed, hospital beds are available, what's ICU capacity to help us understand, you know, we're, we're looking at trends over time. So if we know we're trending upward and, oh, you know, our ICUs are slammed, something's not, you know, we, we have to prepare for an, in, you know, an increase uh, influx in the number of cases. So yes, it's a, has quite a bit to do with monitoring, evaluation, tracking, trending, and, and making predictions that are informing policies. So now we've arrived at uh, the pandemic. Let's talk about how it's being handled where you live. And by by where you live, I, I mean your your home state. In Australia, um, and I'm, I'm in South Australia, but in Australia generally, as, as you might be aware, we're doing pretty well. We think we think we're pre- we're doing pretty well. We've introduced some some very strong measures, and those were introduced very early, and they've been upheld quite rigidly. One of the first things our prime minister did was to convene what's called a national cabinet, where the the premiers, that's um, equivalent to your governors of each state, were brought together with the federal government, and they all had a conference and and convened on on what to do, what steps to take, and how to coordinate their responses across the entire nation. So the federal government worked very closely with the states to make sure that, that everyone was on the same page. And then individual states have been free to take their own measures and, and adjust them depending on their specific situations. Some measures that we've taken include states closing borders to each other, and I'm talking about hard border lockdowns enforced by police with severe penalties, significant fines, say up to $15,000 for breaching for, for breaching these measures. For example, a strict quarantine for Australians returning from overseas. So for example, my mother has just returned from the UK. She is required to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel that's managed by a uh, a government contracted quarantine service. She is paying $4,000 for that privilege because the the government has said the public must bear the cost uh, for, for this kind of thing if you're coming back from overseas. The government has also closed our international borders. So flights out outside Australia have been pretty much limited to essentials like for 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 business and 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 political you know 
services and this kind of thing. So domestic domestic flights, um, even interstate, have been severely limited. And pretty much for the average person, international travel is completely banned until I think probably March, maybe even June next year. So, and then at a state level, various other lockdowns have been introduced at various points. Um, just this last Saturday, we finally had a birthday party for, for my son who turned 10 in November, but due to lockdown restrictions in South Australia, we were unable to hold a birthday party for him. And it's only been in the last few weeks that restrictions have eased and it's been possible to have a group of people out in a public place and, and hold that kind of event for him. So this is the, the way we're, we're doing it in, in Australia. We've also got very rigid uh, contract tracing. There's a, a, an app that you can download from the government called COVID Safe, uh, and that's the federal government app. And here in, in South Australia, we've got a little state government app that we use for doing all our all our everyday stuff that would that saves us going into a government office. So, for example, using the app, I can renew my car registration or my driver's license, and I can also use it to scan and, and verify digital ID. And they've recently added a contact tracing function to that as well. So if I go into a major department store, I can scan that and it will automatically send to the state government. I, uh, Dave Burke checked in at such and such a place at such and such a time. And then I just update that if I go to a, a pharmacist or, or wherever. Um, again, I just scan myself in and all that all that information is is sent straight to where it needs to be. So these are kinds of, of measures that we've we've taken in Australia. Now we've got a population of about 25 million. And although we have quite a substantial land mass, we actually have a high population density. So about 90% of Australia's population lives in 10% of the land mass. And about 86% of our population is urbanized. So <laughs> most people live on or within 40 kilometers of the coast <laughs> because two thirds of the, of the landmass is literally uninhabitable. <laughs> um, so we do have quite a, you know, a highly urbanized population, which does present its own challenges but over the course of the year we've had about 28,171 cases of SARS-CoV-2 and we've had a total of 908 deaths so overall I think we're, we're tracking pretty well can you give me some some insight into the way it's been handled in, in your state and maybe expand a little bit perhaps at, at, at the federal level as well just to give some insight into how, how that's going and what measures are being taken Sure. Dave, I, don't, I don't know if you're intending to brag. <laughs> Me? Oh, hardly. Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Compared to Australia, you know, everywhere in the U.S. is doing really poorly. Um, you know, I think... I think there was a lot of missteps that were made um, in the in, in the initial response. Um, you know, we did not have a coordinated federal and local um, response. We did not have coordination or aid provided by the federal government. Um, you know, it's been really, really substantially politicized here. So, you know, and that's obviously it, it, it's national, you know, that's that that effect is national. But um, so I live in Pennsylvania near Philadelphia, um, which is an urban center. Um, and and Pennsylvania is really a mixed bag. So um, I'm sure if you've been following the American news, um, Pennsylvania is one of the 
battleground states. Um, there's a lot of attention paid on Pennsylvania. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of politically motivated pushback um, in general in Pennsylvania, about a half the state, uh, a little less than half, um, but, but certainly with regard to response to the pandemic. So we are run by a Democratic governor, um, and, and the governor and the State Department of Health have done a pretty good job in terms of following science and following science-driven policies. Um, the challenge is uh, in the U.S. in general, and, and certainly, you know, when you look at cer certain political affiliations, um, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, political freedom and, and um, again, no a lack of collective responsibility. So, you know, in Pennsylvania, we do have a statewide mask mandate. Lots of people defy it and there are no repercussions for if you defy it. Um, we also have new restrictions that have recently been implemented, such as they just closed indoor dining in restaurants, um, indoor gyms, movie theaters, casinos, et cetera. Um, there's, there's restrictions on capacity of indoor and outdoor gatherings. Um, ultimately, though, again, there are a lot of those businesses that are defying that. The only penalty right now is a, a nominal fine, and a lot of these businesses are uh, vocally defying it as some sort of kind of stamp of pride um, and are like, we're going to pay the fine, you know, we're not going to let them infringe on our freedom. You know, and, and we're also seeing a lot of transmission is occurring with private social gatherings. And of course, um, there's no repercussions for that. So those people are getting infected. They're having parties at their houses. They're not wearing masks indoors, even though you're supposed to. And of course, then those people are going out in the community and they're continuing to spread it around. Um, you know, another thing that has gotten a lot of pushback is that we have no federal financial aid um, for any employees, employers, or businesses that are that had to shut down or were forced to shut down as a result of the pandemic. So it's this kind of push-pull between people who are like, well, we need to keep the economy going and I'm out of work, but the economy is going to fail if we don't get the pandemic out of, uh, under control and, you know, people, uh, individuals, Americans are not getting any sort of support um, from the federal level in order to ultimately survive this. Uh, I think I think some people, a very small proportion, were able to get $1,200 total earlier this year. And I think they recently signed off on a new one that's going to give them a one time of $600, which, you know, even combined doesn't even pay a quarter of, you know, most people's mortgage or, or rent or, you know, utilities for a single month. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not great here for sure. No, no, it's not. Um, I think Andrea is really touching on something that's rampant right now. There's this push, you know, you have a good handful of us are really focused on getting this pandemic un under control. And then this, I, I honestly, at this point, Andrew, I don't know if you'd agree, I think it's the majority of people are so focused on the economic implications of shutdowns and of these mitigation measures. So it's really more about businesses versus public health. So that's really unfortunate. Um, I live in Florida and I don't know if you're allowed to curse on this podcast. So I'll, I'll suffice it to say, uh, things are not great here. All kinds of suspicious um data snafus, inconsistencies with reporting. You know, I mentioned the test positivity rate. You'll get a different answer if you look at, you know, every website has a totally different rate. So there are all kinds of inconsistencies that are politically driven. 
Right now, I looked up the test positivity for my counties right around 10%. That's not great. You know, this, the virus is definitely in the community. Um, the one good thing, if it's the case where you are in Philadelphia, Andrea, is that it's very easy to get tested. Um, so testing is, is really great, but definitely there's no, you know, this, uh, no universal masking. I've gotten glares if I wear masks. I've walked into restaurants or to pick up food. I'm not doing any, you know, indoor dining right now, even though that is totally open here in Florida. I'll go in to pick up some food and everyone's just sitting around not wearing a mask. And I feel like I'm in the twilight zone because my life has been totally put on pause for the past year, you know, haven't done any of that. And here are these people acting as though everything's totally normal. So as Andrea said, I don't think it's a surprise to folks outside of the US, but there's a real sense of personal freedom, you know, even being told to do something like wear a mask, which is the easiest thing that we could do and so highly effective is an infringement on our freedom, um, a real libertarian sentiment. Uh, it's sort of enshrined in our national mythos. Um, you know, we like to think of ourselves as independent. So there's this emphasis on individualism versus societal contribution, and people just really don't like being told what to do. So that's why, you know, it's like the vaccine is so necessary here because no one wants to take the steps to prevent it. Um, but unfortunately, people don't realize that the vaccine isn't this magic pill where everything goes away. We do have to continue these mitigation measures. So it's a bit of a mess. <laughs> I, I want to jump in there too. I think um, yeah. we have no border lockdowns, no checkpoints, no restrictions on passing from state to state. So there's no, um, you know, I mean, we have these like Pennsylvania, if you travel out of state, even if it's for work or something, you're supposed to quarantine for 14 days or get a negative test and prove that. But there's nobody enforcing it. There's no, there's no verification. Um, I mean, I see people on my social media feeds who are off on vacation, who are traveling or flying, who are doing this, that, and the other. Um, I think briefly, some airlines were reducing the number of seats that they filled, but um yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty much a free for all here. And and Pennsylvania is interesting because it has a population of 12.8 million. It's it's and it's very heavily concentrated in the East Coast and the West Coast. The middle is is much more rural and, and more farmland. And we think I think we have a test positivity rate of about 15 percent right now. It's it's nice. really um, it's it's out of control. Um, I think we've we've exceeded hospital beds in most of the state at this point. Um, and, you know, very few people, you know, are doing it's it's like this group project, right, where, you know, the, the two high achievers in the class are doing all the work and the 20 other people in the class are not doing anything and they're dragging the curve down and, and except, you know, the curve is people's lives here. Right. And, and Dave, you were talking about the, some of the numbers in us Aus, in Australia. So just to give you a sense of our numbers, I had to look this up, but we have about 331 million people in the US, about 18 million cases, um, 320,000 deaths, which equates to just over about 1000 deaths per million. So really staggering statistics. That is a uh, pretty horrific. Yeah, I think Australia's at about thirty-six deaths per million, something, something around there. Uh, so can we come pretty... to? Can we come to Australia? 
<laughs> well, you can't because we've locked up. <laughs> smart, smart. Touché, Dave. Yeah, no, you should keep us out. Call us next year. Um, yeah, the there's definitely. I mean, I follow American politics very closely, so I'm aware of the various tensions uh, and and the challenges presented by um, the conflict between ideologies over there, not just between states, but also at the federal level. We have a conservative federal government at the moment, and they've been very keen to get, you know, get, get Australia back working again, et cetera, et cetera, um, because they're under considerable pressure from their lobbyists. But they have been pretty sensible about deferring to the states uh, and letting them take it at their own pace. We have a pretty even mix of right-wing and left-wing state governments in play at the moment. So, yeah, although the, the federal government would love to get everyone back in again, what they do at least understand is that, uh, and, I, and I think the evidence has borne this out throughout the year, countries that locked down hard and fast managed to... Uh, minimize damage to, to both their economy and their public health. And it's one thing to say, oh, but we need the economy to be going. Well, you can't have an economy going if public health isn't there to support it. And the the two things are, are inextricable. So it's not as, as simple as saying, if we just get everyone back working, then everything will be okay. No, why? Because you're just exacerbating the underlying problem, which is the spread of the disease. So I was looking on, um, I was looking recently at a at a, a website that which charts these kinds of statistics, and I can't remember which one it was just offhand, but it did clearly show that countries which acted quickly and and locked down hard and early successfully preserved their public health and their and their financial health, their economic health, and took less of an impact, less of an economic impact. Now, the impact is definitely there. There's, there's no denying it. And Australia dipped perilously close to a recession at one point this year, which was a big shock because our last recession was more than 20 years ago. We haven't had one for, for more than 20 years. So everyone was sort of, you know, holding their breath to see what would happen. But we managed to, to pull through that little dip and, and we're basically still okay. I think this is the the big part of the problem as i think you've you've also highlighted is the national mentality the national psyche how do people tend to view their role in this pandemic from a personal view and and how that plays out at a national level you rightly say that the us has a very strong libertarian slash independent mentality and, and that's this australia sort of does have an independent mentality as well uh, we are particularly known for our, our mockery of our politicians for example the the satirization and lack of respect for politicians in this in this country is, is legendary however we also have a uh, what I'd say is almost a unique characteristic, which is the concept of mateship uh, and which emerged during the First and Second World Wars when Australian troops had to go overseas and fight wars that, well, particularly with the with First World War at least, had absolutely nothing to do with us, but we did out of, uh, out of loyalty to our, our mother country, Britain, and, and our European allies. And in the trenches, Australian soldiers looked out for each other because the idea was, you know, I'm your mate, you're my mate, no matter where we've, we've come from in Australia, we're all in this together. So mates look after mates. And that concept of mateship, uh, mateship was um, 
baked into the national psyche very, very early. Uh, and then it, it, it held strong during the Second World War when we were actually involved in wars that didn't were, were more relevant to us, particularly when we, we fought the Japanese, for example, in, in Papua New Guinea. And then that sort of became part of the, the national psyche overall. So in Australia, when the, the politicians have said, you know, we've got to take certain measures to curb the spread of this disease, we'll all complain about it. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. What, a lockdown for for two months, three months, oh, we can't do this, can't go there, restrictions on gatherings, oh, this is ridiculous. And the politicians go, so what, so you're going to do it or not? And we go, well, of course we're going to do it. I mean, yeah, we're not, we're not stupid and we want to look after each other because that's what mates do. We just want you to know that we, we want to complain about it while we're doing it. And politicians go, yeah, okay, that's that's fine. But we, we pull together and we do it because that's that's what you do. You look after your mates and, and you know, your neighbours are, are, by extension, your mates, and and the state next door to your state is, is your mate. So we all sort of pull together, and we can all have a good time complaining out about our politicians while we do it. Yeah, there's there's certainly been some pushback. There's been lobbyists pushing back, and there's been the occasional protest from you know maybe a few hundred nutters in Melbourne who complained about the mask mandate. Victoria was the only state that actually had to to introduce a mask mandate. None of the others found it necessary. And we haven't needed to close our schools anywhere in in the country, thankfully, because we've we've managed to clamp it down pretty quick. A few a few independent schools, I think a few private schools, made the independent decision to to close down for a little while. And even uh, the public school where we send our kids in the in the last term, when the uh, a fresh outbreak occurred, uh, they allowed the kids to go home early and and stay off for about for a. Um, finish the term about one or two weeks early just to be on the safe side. But aside from that, we've been able to keep schools running business as usual kind of thing. It, we've been, the lockdowns have mainly been focused on on business and, and public and private gatherings and that kind of thing. So I think overall, the Australian national psyche has responded well to this. Um, and although there has been lots of pushback from business lobbies, there's at least a general understanding that a healthy economy can't be maintained with, with an unhealthy population. Uh, but of course, we also have universal health care, and this plays into that a great deal as well. And universal health care is massively supported in Australia by both sides of the political fence. There's not a single there's not a single uh, political party except the, the tiny fringe lunatics in Australia that would even vaguely consider dismantling universal health care in this country, which we've had since about, I think, um, early 90 day, 1980s it was introduced under the uh, the Labour government of Gough Whitlam. So, you know, that, that's another advantage that we've got. We've, we have the backup of a, a healthcare system that actually works very well. Anyone who wants to test for SARS-CoV-2 can easily get it. You know, there's a testing station within walking distance of me. It's at our, our local hospital, which is very close. And we, my uh, myself and my kids have been tested twice. So we just went to our local testing station on the day. Within 20 minutes, we'd been tested. Within 36 hours, we'd got our results. And it's free of charge no matter where you go across the country. So that helps as well. I think... Part of the problem in the US with medical expenses being a barrier to people, I think that might have played into this too, the, the problems that you're facing over there. Would you like to sort of expand on that maybe? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we see huge healthcare disparities across the board, um, you know, certainly with preventative care, you know, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're a country that's very focused on treating a medical issue once it's arrived, as opposed to preventing medical issues in general. Um, I remember I had a professor who did a sabbatical in Australia and he told me this story about he got very, very ill and he was in the hospital and he leaves and there was this like really nominal bill and he was, and he's not even Australian, he's American and it was, he was just floored by that. But, um, you know, I think, I think it's interesting because I think generally some sort of you know, um, universal healthcare is technically supported, but then when you talk to people and you, you try and ask them like, you know, how they want to implement it, they, they simply just don't want to pay more in taxes. And, and it's, and it's less that they're not understanding that their taxes they're already paying would be redistributed to fund that and actually would reduce our healthcare costs. We have, we have two times higher healthcare costs than the next leading developed nation. And we have worse health outcomes substantially. We have lower life expectancies compared to most other developed nations. Um, and a lot of it is really because we have these dramatic healthcare disparities and um, socioeconomic status, the, the income inequality is dramatic here. Um, and we see more of that in, in um, you know, persons of color communities and things like that, urban centers. We have a lot of a huge problem with homelessness and ultimately all of those things um, kind of, you know, bubble over and, and lead to the fact that, you know, we have an elite group that get really great, really amazing healthcare and the vast majority of people get mediocre healthcare at best. And then there's a large proportion in the bottom who get no healthcare at all. Absolutely. I mean, I just want to echo everything that you're saying. Really, Dave, what, what you described is really something like a fairy tale yeah, to us. No. Um, it, it's, it's really unfathomable. What is it? Every one in every four or five dollars in the U.S. is spent on health care. We spend so much out of pocket. There's something called, I don't even know if you're aware of it, this, VIP medicine. So we're already, you know, it's already... Um, you know, a commercial, uh, private, privatized health insurance market. But then if you pay, if you pay uh, like a health system money, you get VIP, you could see, see, you know, you get better care. You see the top doctors, you could see them first. I mean, it's, it's, to, it's a total business. This, there's a business of healthcare in this country. Um, to your point about the availability of tests, cost of tests, at least where I am, I know that if we wanted to, you can get it, you can access a test and for free, but I, I, I've heard people paying upwards of a hundred dollars a hundred US dollars per test um, with you know a turnaround time of you know you said like one to two days it takes you know several days more than a week and then of course that limits you know the utility of the test because <laughs> time has elapsed you could have exposed other people you could, anyway it's 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 really the business of healthcare has really hurt us in this country. And this, the mentality that you described of, um, what did you say, you know, help your mate, you know, that's, that's really not, that, that does not exist here. That exists in pockets. Obviously, Andrea and I subscribe to that mentality, um, but, but that is not, you know, we hear all the time, you know, why should I get vaccinated? You get vaccinated. Why does it, you know, why does it matter? This, this idea of herd immunity and community immunity, it just, it flies over people's heads. Um, it's really, as you said, Andrea, it's a failed group project. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. So in Pennsylvania, it's actually quite difficult to get a test unless you have a known exposure. Mm. Um, and um, 
Some of them are covered. So if you have a known exposure or there's certain criteria, they're covered. But um, for, for me, for example, I have to get uh, precautionary tests for work and those are out of pocket and they're usually somewhere between 75 and 150 US dollars. Um, you know, and of course, most of those end up being the rapid tests because they have to reserve the PCR test for, you know, um, actual exposures. And so, of course, they're more inaccurate as well. So then you kind of get into this little can of worms here where, you know, you're kind of paying for paying for not a lot of information. I really appreciate your insights on that. I mean, healthcare is a much broader topic that I would I would love to discuss with both of you and um, a couple of other uh, a couple of other people I've got in mind actually I would love to do a, a larger sort of conference call on on this because it's an issue that's very close to my heart and I think it's an issue that's going to increasingly become um, a major one in the future as Western populations continue to age and questions about sustainability arise what I will say is with what a lot of people miss about universal healthcare is that it's not just about quality of care. The critical point is accessibility of care. And that's what people miss. They go, oh, but you know, under universal healthcare, does that mean we all get the same kind of treatment? I don't want to get the same kind of treatment. I want to get the best possible treatment. Well, leaving that aside, because that's a red herring and, and quite inaccurate anyway, the key point is, are you going to get that access to that healthcare in the first place? If you can't get it now under your system and you could get it under another system, I think the question about which system is preferable becomes very clear. You know, it, it, the, the answer sort of um, presents itself. Now in Australia, under our system, we have a mixture of, of public and private. We've got plenty of private hospitals around. People can use them as much or as little as they want people are free to buy and use private healthcare uh, health insurance if they want to it can be it you can no matter where you live in the country it can be bought and sold across state lines if i live in western australia and i want to buy uh, private health insurance from a, a company based in queensland sure i can do that there's no restrictions whatsoever uh, and by law the insurance companies are not allowed to refuse insurance on the basis of pre-existing conditions or age so you know you've you've got you've got no um, no restrictions there either and again it's it's about access now i have ulcerative colitis and ankylosing spondylitis and they don't get along well with each other which is why i have to balance out the types of medications that i take for them but the bottom line is those medications are wonderfully affordable. Um, my salazapyrin, for example, for my ulcerative colitis costs me about, I don't know, I think it's maybe 15 to $20 a month because our, our pharmaceuticals are massively subsidized. And, and if I was on, if I was a low income earner, it would cost me about $6.50 a month. So, you know, again, it's, it's about access. The other thing is that not only is no one, nobody required to get private health insurance, they're not penalized if they don't get it. Uh, and even if they do have private health insurance, they're still free to use the public system as much or as, as little as they want, because after all, your, your taxes are paying for it. So, and I have, yes, the, the whole question of, oh, but you'll pay more in taxes, it really isn't borne out at all. Um, I mean, we've got pretty generous tax bans in Australia. We've got a, a tax-free threshold of $20,000. So low-income earners are, are very well accommodated there. And the uh, our universal health care is funded by a 1% income levy, which kicks in at a certain income threshold. 
And then if you are earning above a certain higher threshold, so if you're above $100,000, you get an additional surcharge, which is 1.5%. So a lot of people will pay a maximum of a 1% 1 levy on their income towards our universal healthcare system. And if you're in the, the, the super rich category, you're paying an extra 1.5% on top of that. I just don't think that's a very onerous burden, to be honest. And it, I think it completely blows a hole in this idea that, you know, universal healthcare introduces a, an insufferable tax burden. I, I just don't see that borne out at all. Well, we, we, and it also comes back to the to the issue. Sorry, um, that a healthy economy needs healthy workers, and if you keep your your workers healthy, then the costs are reduced across the board for absolutely everyone. And the best part is that all of a sudden, healthcare is not tied to employment. Mm, yep. And, and that, again, is an accessibility issue that I think a lot of people overlook. I was just going to say, we could we could probably speak for hours about this. And we would <laughs> welcome the opportunity to, to, to speak with you again and, and with others. Um, and actually, it's so funny. Andrea and I do our very best to steer clear of politics. And this is such a highly politicized topic that I think if, if folks heard even just what we've said, which is, I mean, totally you know, innocuous. Common sense, yeah. <laughs> um, we would be, you know, immediately uh, people would discredit us as having a political agenda. And it, it's, it's, yeah, right, it's Angela? Very, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate. And, yeah. and um, yeah, I mean, you know, we have this mentality that, you know, we keep our nose to the grindstone and we work a, you know, we go into work when we're sick because we don't have, you know, we don't have guaranteed leave and, you know, people that are hourly workers don't have any, you know, guaranteed leave if they have to take a day off sick and we don't have subsidized childcare. And I mean, we don't have the benefits of a society that afford people to actually stay healthy and have a functioning economy. It's really unfortunate. Yeah, well, uh, full-time workers in Australia get, well, let's see, you get a minimum of four weeks holiday, holidays per year, and then you get uh, five days of paid sick leave per year, and anything else sort of is worked out with your employer. And of course, the longer you're with an employer, generally your 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 um, holiday allotment goes up depending on how long you've you've been with them. But four four weeks is is the minimum, and then you have five days of um, of paid sick leave or carers leave per year. Plus, of course, we've got. We've got maternity leave and, and paternity leave bundled in, into that as as well, and that's paid. So, sorry, I, I can see this is very painful for you. Just, I, just I will, salt on the wound. <laughs> Twist the knife a little bit. <laughs> okay, um, right. Let's get to vaccines now. We we, we finally arrived at the, the whole point of the podcast. Um, <clears throat> and let's talk about the, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines which have come out. Now, as I understand it, most vaccines, generally speaking, have a development cycle of between five to 15 years, depending on their, their complexity and, and, and various other factors such as, as funding or, or industry interest. But these new vaccines that we've got for SARS-CoV-2 have come out in less than 12 months. So the big question the average person on the street is gonna ask is how on earth is that possible? 
You want me to jump in, Jess? Oh, please. So, <laughs> so I think I think the the biggest there's there's two kind of things that have enabled us to accomplish this. So the first is that the groundwork for these vaccines were done decades ago. So um, SARS-CoV-2 is in the coronavirus family of viruses. Um, there's a lot of those out there. The vast majority of these are in other species, including bats and pangolins and camels and birds and things like that. Um, but there are some that are in humans and two of those that have similar um, genetics, they're not the same virus, but they're related are the virus that caused SARS in the early 2000s and the virus that caused MERS in kind of the later 2000s. Um, I think it was 2002, 2008. Um, these two viruses, they were called SARS-CoV, I call it the OG SARS, and then MERS-CoV. And CoV is just coronavirus, that's, that's what it means. Um, so they're related and actually a lot of work was done to try and develop vaccines against those viruses um, early on. Now the, the difference with those viruses is MERS actually was self-eliminating. It actually had a very, very low infectivity and so it essentially extinguished itself. Um, but SARS, the interesting difference there was that it was very contagious, but it also led to almost no asymptomatic illness. So when people got SARS, they got very sick. They ended up in a hospital and they essentially were functionally isolated because they were sick. So there weren't people walking around the population infecting all these people. So even though it was quite dangerous, it didn't spread as far as we're seeing COVID-19 spread. Um, it's, it's a fundamental difference in the biology of the virus, but they're related enough that they were working really actively on these vaccines. So by the time COVID-19 came around, we knew a lot about the biology of the virus. We knew what targets were likely to be viable candidates for the vaccines. And so they were able to basically bypass the typically the decades of preclinical research that goes into identifying that and characterizing the virus, because we already knew that we did it decades ago. Um, so we didn't have to spend the bulk. So the bulk of the vaccine development timeline is that preclinical phase where you're dealing with in vitro culture models and you're dealing with animal studies. So we've done all that. So we really just kind of transferred that knowledge to the new virus, which is related, but slightly different. And then at the same time, we were able to do all of the vaccine development manufacturing processes concurrently instead of consecutively. So typically it's not cost effective to build manufacturing and start manufacturing before you have your clinical trial data, because if the clinical trial shows that the vaccine is not effective or it's not safe, you've wasted all that money on your manufacturing and you have to junk it. So in a normal timeline, you're going to do those things one at a time to ensure that what you're pursuing is what you're going to ultimately build, manufacture, produce, etc. In a pandemic, because we do have some federal funding going into these initiatives and kind of, you know, companies are kind of gearing up to to address this. They're taking on the financial risk and building manufacturing um, capacity at the same time as these clinical trials are running. And in addition, we further expedited it by running the animal studies at the same time as the clinical trials. So we're basically collecting the same amount of data and building the same facilities, but we're doing it all concurrently. So it's a huge financial risk, but it enables us to squeeze that timeline down into essentially a year. That's a, a really neat summary and, and um, I appreciate the way you've put that because of course the big question on everyone's mind is what steps have been skipped and you know are they crucial but 
the way you've you've put it is that steps haven't been skipped they've been accelerated and some steps that would normally be run consecutively have been run concurrently so that the timeline can be massively compressed and under normal circumstances you wouldn't do this because of the uh, the, the the financial risk involved and the question of you know how how viable the return on investment is likely to be but now while we're facing a pandemic when there's clearly a massive market demand for for this vaccine those concerns aren't there and it's possible now for for the vaccines to be expedited what about funding uh, as well uh, where is the funding coming from for this? Uh, I understand some vaccines take a while to emerge because funding is, is not unlimited and it does have to be allocated very carefully. How has the fund has the funding been accelerated as well? And and if so, where where has it all come yeah, from? Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's a lot of different companies in play here. So, you know, your your big vaccine players, your giants like Pfizer, they're self-funded. You know, they're just reallocating project money to this project. Um, I actually work um with a couple of Pfizer vaccine teams, and you know, they've they've seen their just their budgets are redistributed to address this. Uh smaller companies like Moderna, Moderna is uh, a company that's only been around for about a decade. Um, so they're obviously much smaller scale, they did receive government government funds to help address that and help them accelerate these processes. So it's a combination of, of self-funding with a hope of a payout ultimately, um, and then government aid with regard to that. The new vaccines use something called mRNA technology. What is this? How does it work? And why was it chosen for SARS-CoV-2 vaccines? Ah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of give my spiel. So, so first, there's actually a lot of different vaccines in development for SARS-CoV-2. The two front runners just happen to be mRNA vaccines, and there's a couple of reasons for that. But um, we do have more traditional va vaccines that are, are in the clinical phase pipeline. Um, those would include traditional like subunit vaccines or inactivated virus vaccines. Um, there's also another new technology called viral vector vaccine. So that's the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca Oxford um, vaccines. Those are based on a, a vector-based technology. Um, and then the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna ones are based on the mRNA technology. And so um, mRNA is this, is, is this transient molecule that um, ultimately has a sequence that tells our cells to produce a functional component of a gene. So the functional product of a gene is a protein. And, and ultimately, RNA works as this intermediary. So our genome or our genetic code, our, our um, you know, everything that makes any organism what they are is typically contained in DNA. And DNA lives inside a particular compartment of our cells. And you can envision DNA as being the encyclopedia of our cells. Everything that ever, ever we would need to know is contained in that DNA. RNA, you could imagine to be like a page of notes that you jotted down from a single volume of that encyclopedia. It's not quite the same. It's not a photocopy because it's not the exact same format. It's a very, it's a different molecule and structure. And it only includes the most important critical information. And so you cut out all of kind of the intermediary information. So you jotted some notes down, it has all the key salient pieces. And then it's used very transiently. So once that RNA is, is 
you know, the notes are taken, this specialized complex in our cells called a ribosome reads that note and it makes a protein out of it. And this happens for every protein in any organism. It always goes through this, this RNA is read by the ribosome and the ribosome makes a protein based on what that RNA says. Um, so in the context of these RNA vaccines, what we've included is the piece of RNA that leads to, or is the, the sequence for the spike protein of the virus. So the virus has this capsule around it that has proteins and fats, and it has these little projectile proteins that stick out of it. And those are the proteins that grab onto our cells and infect us. So those are the proteins that our immune system recognizes as foreign because that's the first thing they encounter. They're like, hey, this protein is in our body. It doesn't belong here. So the mRNA in the vaccine is simply the template to produce that protein. So when we get injected with that mRNA, our body's like, hey, some RNA, I'm going to make some protein out of it. So the ribosome reads it and makes this protein. And then our body's like, wow, this protein doesn't belong here because it's not human. So then the immune system attacks it and it mounts this immunity to that protein. And then you're protected when you actually encounter the virus. And we deliver this RNA because RNA itself is transient. It only exists for hours, a period of hours, and then it degrades. It only needs to be around for as long as the protein needs to be made for. So we protect it in this capsule of fat, basically. And so we have it inside this little droplet. We deliver it into our cells. That, caps, that capsule degrades. The RNA is translated into that protein, and, and then it, it basically disintegrates. Um, and you've got these proteins, you're going to trigger that immune response. And, and that's all that's pretty much in the vaccine. It's, it's quite elegant. And, um, you know, this technology has been around for mRNA technology has been around for decades. Um, other vaccines have been made um, using this approach. And the challenge with the RNA is it's not very stable. So other vaccines were not very effective because they didn't find a, a, an effective way to stabilize the RNA for delivery. These ones are effective because they've honed that technique over decades. And now we're able to actually use this very elegant technology that's low risk because there's no virus even involved in the manufacture of it um, to deliver this RNA without it degrading and create this really strong immune response. That is, is really fascinating. And, and thank you for that very clear explanation. So as, a, as I understand it, unlike some other vaccines, there's no trace of the actual virus in the vaccine but rather there's like a little short set of shorthand notes that is basically handed to our immune system it says look this is how this thing is made and if you produce one of these you will know immediately or if you follow these instructions you will know Im immediately how it's built and and how to get rid of it so there's no need to actually have any trace of of the uh, of the virus in the vaccine at all, whether inactivated or, or live. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that actually brings me to kind of the reason why these are the two leading the, 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 the race, because unlike traditional vaccine technologies, um, viruses have to infect a cell, right, in order to reproduce. So in order to produce vaccines using inactivated or intact virus, you have to grow a lot of cells, then you have to infect a lot of cells, you have to grow a lot of virus, then you have to harvest all that virus. 
that takes a long time. With RNA, we're just synthesizing it in the lab using the materials needed to make the RNA. So you can make tons of RNA in a very short period of time because we don't even need the virus. These labs that are generating these vaccines aren't even working with the virus in the lab. They're just working with this, this sequence of RNA. Uh, Jessica, would you like to add, add anything to that? This is Andrea's field. I'm not even going to pretend. I'll just say, you know, it's funny to we see the myth that keeps coming up. You, you know, this is some new technology and that our DNA is being altered. And as Andrea has so beautifully articulated, none of that is true. This is not a new technology. It's been around for decades. Um, you know, there's absolutely nothing is happening to our DNA. So, um, yeah, I'm, I won't try to touch the science. This is Andrea's <laughs> shtick. But uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you, Andrea. <laughs> well, this interview has been a, a tremendously informative and, and a huge amount of fun. Uh, if people want to follow your work, where can they find you online? Yeah, so we are in between uh, recording episodes, which are released every Monday on all major uh, podcast platforms like Stitcher and Apple and Spotify. We're very active on social media. In particular, we're very active on Facebook, uh, the Unbiased Science Podcast, and on Instagram. Our handle is at Unbiased SciPod. Uh, P-O-D. And uh, we also try to post on LinkedIn. As you said, there are quite a few restrictions on character limits. So sometimes it's uh, a little tricky to do that, um, as well as on Twitter. Again, same handle at Unbiased SciPod. Um, we do this all ourselves, as I said, in our spare time. So it's really um, quite an undertaking. Uh, but we hope that you guys will tune in every Monday and follow along. Um, we do our best to, to post. And as I said, we're really, right now we're focused pretty much exclusively on COVID and on the COVID vaccines in particular. But, you know, once this all quiets down, we'll be covering lots of different topics. Just um, later this week, we're, we're going to record an episode on, uh, you know, organic, the, the organic label for foods, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, so not just COVID, lots of other scientific topics. <laughs> and, and Jessica, if people want to learn more about your company, where, where can they go for that? Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, Vital Statistics Consulting. We're less active on um, on social media. Actually, Unbiased Science is a wholly owned subsidiary under VSC, um, but we do have a Facebook page, uh, Vital Statistics Consulting. We're also on LinkedIn. Um, do we have an Instagram page? If we do, it's not active. <laughs> I think there is one. <laughs> there is one. Okay. We probably haven't posted in like three years. Um, but yeah, Unbiased iPod is, de we're definitely very active on social media and that's the best way to interface with us. We love answering questions. We love feedback. Um, we're actually just about to do a post saying that, you know, we're so grateful we are growing our following. And of course, our goal is not to get followers, it's to spread information. Um, but that means that people, um, there have been quite a few posts and we're having trouble keeping up with the posts. So really the best way to get in touch with us uh, if there's any sort of pressing or urgent uh, topic is to reach out to us uh, by message through Facebook or Instagram or to email us um, at unbiasedscipod at vscgrp.com. Yeah, the comment threads can get a little off track and it's hard to manage all of those. So direct, <laughs> yeah. me direct message is always best. 
Well, Andrea and Jessica, you've been extremely generous with your time, and I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to to come on this podcast and share your knowledge. It's been a great amount of fun. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs> Sorry. Thank Andrew. you. No, thank you so much, Dave, for having us. It was it was fun to chat about all of the topics we feel so passionately about and, you know, don't get to talk about often enough, I think. <laughs> yeah. And so interesting to get a perspective that's outside of the United States. So although it makes me a little sad. It does. <laughs> it's a little bit depressing. <laughs> but we'd love to continue the conversation anytime. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.